Welcome to On Mission, the teaching ministry of the Mission Church in Urbandale, Iowa. We exist to love God by loving others, leading them to become fully functioning followers of Jesus Christ. As you know, we have been in our study of Revelation. And uh, as we began our study, we discovered that the Apostle John, who is the one who physically wrote out the revelation of Jesus Christ, while he was on the island of Patmos, he was given an assignment by the Lord Jesus Christ. And that assignment is found in chapter 1, verse 19, where he was told to write the things that you have seen, the things that are, and the things that are to take place after this. The things that you have seen, he wrote. And we, we looked those over in chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. And they pertained to Jesus revealing himself, the risen, glorified Christ, revealing himself to his servant, uh, John. And then the things that are. The things that are, we've just finished studying those that pertain to the condition of the seven churches in Asia Minor and what the Lord Jesus had to say to them about their condition, and that was chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. And then finally, he was told to write the things that are to take place after this. And that assignment pertains to a time that is still yet future to us and takes up the remainder of the book of Revelation from chapter 4 all the way through chapter 22. And in those chapters, we discover that the world will go through a, a time of great tribulation, also that the manifestation or the coming, the fullness of the coming of the kingdom of God with Jesus reigning here on earth as its king will take place as well. Final judgments on those who rejected Christ throughout history will be conducted and ultimately will get to the place where there is the establishment of a new heaven and a new earth where all of the children of God will live with him eternally and so that's kind of what we where we've been and that's where we're ultimately going now it is out of the revelation that has been given um, about this future time found in both the old testament and the new testament comes what is known as the doctrine of eschatology eschatology uh, on the screen, you see there uh, the Greek word. When you transliterate those into English, just wanted to make sure I'm seeing it right, Me, you come up with the word eschaton, which means last things. And when we put that ology on the end, that simply means the study of. And so eschatology, big fancy word, but it doesn't need to scare anybody. You just have to kind of learn to say it without getting tongue twisted. Eschatology is the study of last things. Over the millennia, scholars have studied this revelation. They have been seeking to understand its significant points, what they mean, the how and when of them taking place. And as these pieces of information over the years have come together, uh, they have become systematized and form a set of beliefs which is known as doctrine. When you hear the word doctrine, that's what you're talking about. You're talking about an established set of beliefs. Um, as it relates to doctrine, though, truth point number one, 
you take your note guide, not all doctrine is equal. In that, not all doctrine is formed from an infallible source. There are many doctrines out there in many different religions that come from all kinds of crazy, ridiculous places. So just because something is labeled as a doctrine doesn't mean it's a biblical doctrine. Amen? Right? So all doctrine is not equal in that all doctrine does not, is, is not uh, formed from an infallible source. And even when it does come from an infallible source, there are differences pertaining to how that infallible source is approached. And in part, that's what today's message is about. Today, I want to talk to you about the two primary ways or the two primary systems in which our infallible source, the Bible, God's Word, is approached. And my goal today is simply to introduce to you those systems and then the eschatological doctrine that is formulated out of those systems. But before I get into that, just a couple of thoughts. First of all, to those of you who are new to the Mission Church or just beginning to visit, I would encourage you every Sunday when you come in, east or west side, to grab a note guide. They're always there on the table or at the Welcome Center. Those note guides can help you stay awake. They help you follow what I'm saying a little bit better, maybe. Filling in the blanks, you know, all that kind of thing. And they become a resource down the road. So I just want to encourage you. We, we print plenty. Grab one, bring it in. One for each person in the family is fine. So I, I want to just say that. Also, I want to talk to you for just a moment about my motivation and my expectation regarding the information that I'm going to be sharing today and for the next two Sundays. Remember, we're taking a little break away from Revelation proper to talk about this issue of the doctrine of eschatology. Uh, the teaching that I'm going to present today, and as I said, for the next two Sundays, will be what I believe the Scriptures communicate about specific points of eschatology. However, as you are well aware... I am not infallible. Can I get an amen on that? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's uh, self-evident, right? I am, I am not infallible. And the thing that I want to say there is, is that you may hold to a different view. You, you, you may not agree with all of the things that I'm going to bring forward. And I want to say to you that if that's the case, it's okay. It is perfectly okay. It is not my intention to indoctrinate you with my understanding of eschatology, but to simply explain my view of eschatology. So if we don't agree on all eschatological views, then we don't have to part company. We don't have to become enemies. We don't have to set up different camps who sit in different sections in the church, right? We don't have to do that. Um, I promise to give you plenty of latitude to understand things and see them as you presently do. It's usually a, a growing experience as we dive into a doctrine. We usually grow and understand things more and more. And I'm asking you to give me the same latitude. So can we agree on that? I'm going to give you latitude. You're going to give me latitude. What do you say? Okay, that sounds great. We can move forward. 
Also, I want to just say that um, those of you in the crowd, and there are some here today, who have uh, dabbled or studied eschatological doctrine, you will likely find my presentation today and over the next two Sundays to be perhaps elementary. You, you, you may go home and on your way home in the car, you're talking to whomever's there with you. If no one's with you, you're talking to yourself. And you're discussing how Pastor Mike just didn't go deep enough. He just didn't go far enough. He, he didn't include this and he didn't include that and he skipped over that. He must not believe any of that. Listen, understand that in these three Sundays, I'm only seeking to give you a high-level overview and I'm intentionally working hard to keep the complex simple. All right? Also, there may be more of you in the room, online, over in the uh, overflow room, who have never dabbled in eschatology, and this is the first time you're even hearing the word, and most likely, over the next three Sundays, you're going to get overwhelmed, and you're going to feel like your brain is going to explode. If that's the case, it's all right. I understand. I've been there, and I'm still there on many parts. There's a lot of complexity, and that complexity can create a frustration uh, and as we're trying to make sense of it all. But I would say to you about that frustration, if it comes, be patient with yourselves. And not only be patient with yourself, be patient with me, all right? And understand that there are no dumb questions, all right? So if you have a question, if there's something you hear me talk about or I don't talk about and you want to engage in conversation about that, that's great, that's awesome, I welcome that. And we still might not agree at the end of the conversation, but that's all right. You know, the iron sharpening iron kind of thing works to help us all to grow. So with those understandings, let's get started. I want to begin by talking about covenant and dispensational theology. Covenant and dispensational theology are the two prominent frameworks from which Scripture as a whole is approached in the Protestant world. Uh, both of these have a measure of complexity that we simply do not have time to explore. If we weren't careful, we could get deep into the weeds very quickly, and I don't think that would be helpful to us at all. So as I've said, my goal then is to provide a basic overview so that we have a collective baseline understanding of the common views of eschatology that emerge out of those two systems. And we're going to get to some of those as well after I address the issue of covenant and dispensational theology. So let's begin with covenant theology. There are at least six stated specific covenants that are found in the scripture. There's the Noahic, the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the Palestinian or land. It's also known as the land covenant, the Davidic, and the new covenants. Those are specifically stated in scripture. And one would think that covenant theology would be derived from those collective covenants. And in a sense, they are, but in a bigger sense... They're actually built on three non-stated covenants that are derived from the overarching body of scriptural revelation. And here are those uh, non-stated, in a direct way, covenants. First, there is 
the covenant of redemption. And the covenant of redemption is something that actually took place before the creation. It is a covenant that is between God the Father and God the Son, that the Son would become the atoning sacrifice for sin that God would, uh, that he knew man, the sin would come upon man. And so there was this meeting of minds, as you might say, and there is this covenant of redemption that Jesus will come and deal with the sin curse. Number two is the covenant of works. This is a covenant between God and Adam. A covenant that basically would say that through Adam's obedience to the command that God gave him, that he would have eternal life and that he would enjoy the splendor of his creation. And we all know that story and how that turned out. Man failed. So that covenant is not operational, although in covenant theology, that particular covenant of works still kind of rests over here a little bit on the side so that there's kind of an open door for the idea that if someone could live according to the commands of God, then they would be able to enjoy uh, all that Adam failed to enjoy. Like I said, that's kind of way off on the side, but it's still kind of there. And then there is the covenant of grace. Because man failed, God entered into a covenant with mankind to send a Savior who would provide a means of forgiving sin's curse, making one who embraced that means in, in the person of Jesus Christ a dearly loved son or daughter of God. So, so those are the basic three covenants that when you hear covenant theology, that's, that's what the baseline um, of it. And there's much more. In fact, we, there's just volumes and volumes that we could get into and we could spend week after week just delving the depths of covenant theology, but we don't, that's really not what our point is. Our point is to discover its impact on the doctrine of last things. And so there's two more items I need to share with you relating to covenant theology that uh, uh, impact the topic that we're talking about. Uh, and that is covenant theology's view of biblical interpretation and their view of Israel and the church. So, in my mind right now, Brad, I can't help it. You know, I know you prayed that I wouldn't have anxiety and all that today, but something is in my brain saying, this, they're, they're dying out there. This is like, but I'm going to press on. Biblical interpretation. Covenant theology, I want you to understand that when it comes to biblical interpretation, they are very serious, very serious about the authority, about the inerrancy, about the infallibility of Scripture. However, among those who study this and critique it, uh, there is the finding that covenant theology tends to have a greater level of taking some scriptures, not all, but some scriptures in a semi-literal or in a spiritualized approach. Let me give you just a quick little example. Revelation chapter 20 verse 6 speaks of Christians reigning with Christ for a thousand years. Uh, the covenant system of interpretation says that that statement is not meant to convey a literal thousand years. 
Instead, they somewhat spiritualize that and say that's just an example of really an undefined, prolonged period of time, that we shouldn't be too uh, uh, caught up that this is a real 1,000 years. It just speaks of a a longer, undefined uh, period of time. And so that's an example of that uh, 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 biblical interpretive approach. As it relates to Israel and the church, covenant theology says that there is no distinction between the two. That basically when Israel failed to take hold of the kingdom that was being offered, that ultimately they became the church. And the promises that were made to Israel specific by God to them are not going to be fulfilled in and through them but are going to be fulfilled in and through the church because there is no distinction. Israel became the church. The church now encompasses the whole thing and the promises that were made directly to Abraham and others will be fulfilled uh, to the church. And that is a very high level and brief uh, explanation of covenant theology for the purposes of our time today. I want to move on then to dispensational theology. And dispensational theology sees God's revelation through the lens of seven dispensations and or ways of administering the affairs of man. That's, the dispensation is not really about a, a period of time. It's about an outworking of the way God is working in and through his creation. Uh, those seven dispensations are identified as pre-fall, conscience, government, patriarchal, Mosaic, church, and millennial. As it relates to dispensational theology, we are presently in the church dispensation, the church age. As it relates to their biblical interpretation, uh, dispensational theology is known for a literal, grammatical, historical approach that uh, uh, of interpreting scripture some have criticized dispensational theology as being too literal too literal but nonetheless that's the way they come at it is from a literal grammatical historical approach they do recognize symbolism they do recognize figures of speech in the scripture but those nonetheless are intended to communicate what is literal in God's revelation. Returning to Revelation 26, 20 and verse 6. So this idea of reigning and ruling with Christ for a thousand years, the dispensational system would say it means exactly what it says, right? It means 1,000 literal years. There's no need to change it. There's no need to spiritualize it. There's no need to make something else out of it. It is what it says it is. That would be the approach. As it relates to Israel and the church, dispensational theology says that there is a distinction, that Israel and the church are separate. They are separate entities for whom God has a plan and separate entities to whom God has made promises and those promises must be fulfilled to each one individually. So, let it be understood 
that covenant theology and dispensational theology agree on many, many, many points of scriptural doctrine. Covenant theology and dispensational theology are not enemies. They're not enemies. But when it comes to eschatological doctrine, they do have serious differences. Differences specific, as we've uh, discussed here, of biblical interpretation and differences relating to God's plan for Israel and the church, which then formulates their understanding of what is still yet to come. And some of you may be sitting there thinking politely to yourselves, why do I need to know this? What difference does this make? Things are going to happen. They're going to go the way they're going to go. Why do I need you to stand up there and talk to me about that? Great. I've got an answer for you. Truth point number two. The reason this is important, it may not be exciting, but it's important, is that one's understanding of God's eschatological plan, his plan for the future, will be determined by which theological system they embrace. Your understanding as you read scripture of where things are going is going to be impacted by which of these two primary systems you embrace. And as I've already shown, each has, a, has unique aspects toward biblical interpretation, which impacts then how they see Israel and the church, which then ultimately impacts their view that they teach and they hold to and they believe about future things. All right. Covenant theologies, eschatology. If one embraces covenant theology, the question is, where will that lead them in terms of an eschatological view? Two prominent views of eschatology are born from covenant theology. One is known as amillennialism, and the other is known as postmillennialism. These views, whichever one you take, will impact what you believe about the millennial kingdom of Christ on earth, the existence or non-existence of a rapture of the church, and the nature of, uh, of the time of the tribulation on earth, or even if there is a tribulation. So let's begin with amillennialism, okay? In the Greek language, the letter A before uh, a word basically negates the word, and so uh, amillennialism would mean no millennium, all right? That's what it means, no millennium. However, Despite that, it's somewhat inaccurate because those who are labeled and follow amillennialism do believe in a millennium. But they do not believe in a literal, physical rule of Christ on earth, but rather a spiritual one. Amillennialism denies a physical, literal reign of Christ on the earth, believing that he is currently reigning already spiritually in the hearts of his church. This view 
can be traced back to Augustine, who lived from 354 to 430 A.D., and later, uh, earlier, to Origen, 185, 254 is when he lived. And believe it or not, this view of amillennialism is the one that has the greatest number of adherents, people who believe it and follow it, uh, among the different uh, viewpoints. And the reason for that is because amillennialism is the viewpoint of the Catholic Church. So that encompasses lots and lots of people. It's also the view of the Greek Church. And it is the view of some Protestant churches, specifically those who may follow and adhere to covenant theology. Some of them hold to it as well. So let me just quickly summarize where amillennialism is coming from as it relates to this issue of eschatology. And these points I have taken from Dr. John Walvert in his um, uh, extensive covering of these topics. Amillennialism, number one, says there is no literal reign of Christ upon the earth. Jesus is not coming to set up a kingdom and to rule here among us. And the reason is because Christ is already currently reigning in the hearts of his church. Amillennialism also believes that Satan was bound at the first advent of Christ. So we're about to celebrate the first advent of Christ. Yes? Yeah. And so that concept then is this, is that when Jesus was born, came into the world, grew up to be a man, and established the teaching of the kingdom of God, went to the cross, rose from the dead, that is when Satan was bound by God in the sense that he cannot stop the forward progress and advancement of the gospel in the world. So that's good news, isn't it, if we're amillennialists, is that Satan's bound, okay? That's what they teach. Number three, they teach that the present age, meaning today, right now, our living right here and now, which is between the first advent and the second advent. The first advent is the birth of Christ, yes? Second advent is the second coming of Christ. That hasn't happened yet. That this age is the outworking or the manifestation of the millennium. So basically, what they're saying is we are presently living in the millennium. I don't personally find that good news. So again... They uh, believe we're living in it because it's not a literal thousand years, but an indeterminate period of time, and they do not accept a literal reigning and ruling of Christ upon the earth. Finally, uh, amillennialism would say that the millennium will come uh, uh, to a close with the second advent of Christ. So Jesus, when he does come, will not be coming to establish anything, He'll be coming simply to gather his own to himself, the judgment of the wicked throughout the ages, and then entering into what is known as the eternal state or eternity as we commonly refer to it. So again, we could spend weeks dissecting amillennialism, but that's the basic things we need to see as it relates to our topic today. 
Moving beyond that then to post-millennialism, Daniel Whitby, who lived in the 17th and 18th century, 1638 to 1726, a Unitarian minister from England, is the one given the credit for developing the doctrine of post-millennialism. Now, post-millennialism agrees with amillennialism on the point that the thousand years that are mentioned there in Revelation um, are associated with a millennium and is to be taken figuratively, which again suggests an extended period of time. At that point, the two go their separate ways. In post-millennialism, the teaching is this, that the church in its proclamation of the gospel, will see continual success until the world becomes Christianized. And when the world becomes Christianized, that will then usher in a golden age of global righteousness. So what postmillennialism is teaching is that we're in a system where the world is going to increasingly get better and better and better, and better, until we enter into that golden age, which is then the millennium. Christ is not ruling and reigning, but many of the facts about the millennium would be considered true by them. And once all of that is achieved, then Christ will return to gather his own to himself, to judge the wicked, and to establish the eternal state. Now, this concept, post-millennialism, grew wildly in the 18th and 19th centuries. The reason is because in that time frame, the world was seeing unprecedented advancements in science, the Industrial Revolution, the rise of democracies, the advancing of peace in the world, and a rising standard of, of, uh, of living. And to the post-millennialist, this then was strong evidence that things were evolving in righteousness, that this is actually happening, and we're seeing the world change. So they would have viewed that period of time, and many people were jumping on board because they saw these things as evidence of an evolving righteousness rather than a devolving into greater sin. As such, during that time, the post-millennial view gave birth to a focus on societal transformation rather than personal conversion. And also, the social gospel, i.e. saving society from social ills and evils, is the purpose of the church. So that's the way they would have seen it during that time. In its more liberal form, it led to a belief that the greatest need of humanity was its liberation from poverty, racism, disease, war, and injustice, as opposed to the greatest need being preaching the gospel to sinners who need redemption from the curse of sin. Ultimately, the realities 
of World War I and World War II did great damage to post-millennialism. And basically, in that time frame, it all but died as the idea of the church bringing in a golden age seemed ridiculous and ludicrous. But believe it or not, post-millennialism in the last several decades, and even more so in recent times, has been mounting a comeback. I was going to talk about that. I was going to give you the three different movements that come out of that and, and how those work. But, but Pastor Brett said, you're, you're filling their minds already with more than they can handle, so don't do that. So I cut it all out. <laughs> Maybe we'll hit that at another time. Well, it, was a good, it was a good point because I can tell that that would have been overwhelming. All of this then leads to truth point number three. Although God's plan will see the world under the authority and righteousness of Christ, that is God's plan, it will take his second advent to bring that to pass. In other words, there is no way in the world that the Christian community or the church can do the work that it would take to Christianize the world. Yes, we're to take the gospel. Yes, we're to evangelize. But the church is not going to get the job done. It's going to take the coming of Jesus Christ to earth to rule and reign to bring that to pass. Part two, the church, which is defined as redeemed humanity, is currently empowered by God's word, currently empowered by God's spirit, to take the soul-saving, life-transforming gospel to the world. That's true, and we see people saved, and we see people grow, and that's great. But until Christ returns, the world as a whole will continually devolve into greater sin and chaos. So the point is simply this. When we look at the Scripture from a literal, grammatical, historical point of view, and we interpret it from that place... There is no way that we can get the idea that the world is going to gradually get better and that the church is going to be involved in making that happen. No, the scripture is very clear. Things are going to continually get worse. It's going to continually devolve. And the church is the salt in the mix to hold back some of the corruption, some of the rot, but it won't be able to hold it all back. In order for things to change in a dramatic way, Christ is going to have to come and use his wisdom and his power and his authority to make those changes. All right, let's talk a little bit about dispensational theology's eschatology. Dispensational theology, with its emphasis on a literal, historic, grammatic method of biblical interpretation, basically leads to only one eschatological view, and that is premillennialism. Premillennialism. Premillennialism teaches that there will be a literal 1,000-year earthly reign of Christ Jesus upon this earth. And that is a point that all premillennialists hold to, that Jesus will come, he will live in the flesh on earth, and he will establish a kingdom that will last on the earth for 1,000 years. 
As I said, this is a view that all premillennialists hold to, but there is more than one camp of premillennialists. Premillennialism basically can be divided into two camps. There's the historic premillennialism, and then there's the dispensational premillennialism. As I said, both agree on a literal reign of Christ on earth for a literal thousand years. Beyond that, then there are some significant differences. Historic premillennialism teaches, listen carefully, that there will be a seven-year tribulation period on earth. We're going to be looking at all of that when we hit Revelation 4 through chapter 19. We'll deal with those things. However, historic premillennialism believes that what is known as the rapture, and most of you have heard of that, that it will not occur until the end of that tribulation period. So basically, from a historic premillennialism view, the church will have to endure the time of tribulation. So if you're going to follow the historic premillennialist view, if that's the truth, then the things we're going to be studying starting in chapter 4 through chapter 19, if they happen here in the near future, we're all going to be going through it. And at the end of that, then, Christ will return. He will establish his kingdom and rule on the earth for a thousand years and so forth and so on. So basically, historic premillennialism is referred to as a post-tribulational viewpoint. Simply meaning that the rapture will happen, but it will happen at the end of the tribulation period. It is said that this was the view concerning the millennium with the early church fathers. Justin Martyr, um, Aaronitis, Polycarp, the church itself. It is believed that this was their view that they held for the first 300 years of church history. Of course, after that came Catholicism, which held an amillennial position. And then in the 17th and 18th century came the postmillennial view, which then ultimately leads to the 19th and 20th century, our time frames, and the rise of this new or different view called dispensational eschatology. What I'm going to do at this point is just give you some very basic points about the dispensational premillennial view. Because next Sunday, we're going to dig deeper into that view and talk about how a literal interpretation leads us to certain ideas and understandings that are part of my doctrinal understanding as well as part of this church's doctrinal position. So here are just a few of those points. The dispensational premillennial view believes and teaches a pre-tribulational rapture. What that simply means is that the Lord will come not all the way to earth, but in the sky, and he will catch up or catch away or snatch up or rapture all of those who are living on the earth at that time who are born again, who are in Christ. And also, before that actually, raising from the dead those who have died in Christ, and they will go with him into heaven. Many premillennial, dispensational premillennial Scholars would call this the first step of the second coming. 
Let me just explain that real quick. The first advent, the birth of Jesus, was more than just the birth of Jesus. The first advent started there. He came through Mary into the world. That started it. But all that transpired until he went back to heaven is considered the first advent. It's not just one day or one event. In like manner, those who believe this uh, position I'm talking about now would see the rapture of the church as the beginning of the second coming and then Christ coming at the end of the tribulation all the way to earth to vanquish his enemies and establish his his, uh, kingdom as the fullness then of his coming. So they teach a pre-tribulational rapture. They teach that following that rapture is a seven-year tribulation period where God will pour out his wrath on Satan's reign over the unbelieving world. And that when that is completed, that will lead to the fullness of the second coming where Jesus and his glorified saints come down to vanquish the enemy that is remaining, and to physically and visibly uh, take care of that situation. That would then be followed by the binding of Satan so that he literally has no access to humanity at all. It won't be just that he can't stand against the gospel. It means he will have no access to the earth, no access to people. He will be bound for 1,000 years. How many could say amen to that? You could start now, uh, Lord, that'd be great. Bind him, put him there. He's not there yet, but that is what premillennialism uh, teaches, and we'll see that in the book of Revelation. After the binding of Satan, we find this leading to the establishment of Christ's literal 1,000-year reign here upon the earth, a time of peace, of prosperity, a reversal of sin, a reversal of sin's curse upon the earth. After that, as we're approaching the end or right at the end of that thousand-year reign, Scripture teaches, and the post-millennial view holds, that Satan will be be released from his bound position for a little brief while to test the nations who were born during the millennial reign. And after that, there will come the final vanquishing of Satan and all who reject Christ. After that, there will be a resurrection of the unsaved dead, going all the way back to the beginning of humanity, all the way till that point. Everyone who died outside of Christ or outside of faith in the coming Messiah will be resurrected, and they will stand before the great white throne judgment which is also referred to in the scripture as the second death in the lake of fire. And once that is completed, it brings about the destruction of the current heaven and earth, which is followed by a new heaven and earth that is remade and reconstituted, which then brings about the eternal state, eternity, where sin, death, pain, sorrow, have no place. And God, in all of his fullness, will dwell with his people eternally. Now, except for that first point that I made about the rapture, everything else that I've just mentioned is in those chapters 
chapter 4 through chapter 22 of the book of Revelation. So each one of those points we're going to be looking at as we go through because they're all right there. In Revelation itself, there is no direct mention of a rapture. It is mentioned in other places. It's just not mentioned there. But everything else is, and that's a big part of what we will be looking at as we get into those chapters that have to do with the things that are yet to come. So, in the briefest possible way, I have attempted to present the two overarching views of scriptural understanding, covenant and dispensational theology. We have considered the eschatological views that come from them, amillennialism and postmillennialism from the covenant theology, historic and dispensational premillennialism from the dispensational theology. I think you would all agree with me, would you not, that this is a lot to wrap your head around. Believe me, I'm sweating up here trying to talk about this. Listen to this carefully. Seriously, listen to this carefully. Try as we might, I do not believe that we will ever be able to say with 100% assurance that we have arrived at all the right views. I just don't think that's possible as it relates to eschatology. No doubt, heaven will bring much clarity. But there is one scriptural doctrine that I believe that we can and have arrived at and that we can say with 100% assurance that we have an understanding of it from the scripture. And that is the gift of salvation provided in Christ Jesus alone, given through God's grace alone, by faith alone. The scripture is very clear that all humanity, as we are from birth, are spiritually dead. We come into this world with an inherited sin nature, separated from God, under his condemnation because of sin. And that means that every single person needs the saving grace that only Christ Jesus can. He made that possible for us by taking on flesh, becoming human, so that at the appointed time, he could become the sacrifice for sin. On the cross, he took sin upon himself, and there he gave his life to atone for our sin debt to God. On the third day, he rose from the dead, evidence that his sacrifice was accepted by God, and he rose with new eternal life to give to those that he saves. As the Savior, Jesus calls on all of us to turn from sin and self, to place our faith and trust in his saving work so that we may have our sins forgiven and so that we may receive the free gift of eternal life. Scripture teaches that all who come to faith in Jesus become part of his body. They become part of the church. And Jesus gave his church an ordinance to celebrate and to remember the sacrifice that he made for us. And we call that communion. In communion, we receive a morsel of bread and a sip of grape juice to remember his body that was broken for sin and his blood that was poured out as the atoning sacrifice for sin. All Christians are called to this. And if you know Christ as your Savior and Lord this morning, whether you're a member of TMC or not, you're invited to join in this act of worship as we remember the body and blood of our Savior. The elements are going to be passed in just a moment. You'll find a double-stacked cup in the bottom cup is a little piece of 
bread, and of course the one on top has the juice, and we'll take those together in just a few moments. As the elements are passed, though, I would encourage every believer to examine your life. Is there any unconfessed sin? If there is, then bring it before the Lord. Turn from it and receive the cleansing that confession brings. If today you do not know Christ as your Savior, then when the tray comes by, just let it go by. You don't need to be embarrassed. Every single one of us in this room have done that or been in that position, including myself, because all of us had a time before we came to faith in Christ. But as it passes you, I would ask you to consider this question. What is standing between you and faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior? And if you have questions, I'm available to help you find those answers. Father, now as we take these moments to remember your sac- uh, the sacrifice of Jesus, as we remember his body that was broken for us, as we remember his blood that was poured out for the remission of sin, may we marvel at the love that motivated you to do that. May we, may we worship as we think about the mercy and the grace that is available through that act of love of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we take time to really marvel at the eternal life that has been given through him that includes living in that eternal state in eternity where all that exists will be as he desires it to be. And we will be able to worship him. Help us, Lord, to rejoice in that as well. And finally, I just pray for anyone who may be here in this room in the overflow or watching online or even down the road as they watch an archived message who does not know Christ. May, they, may their eyes be opened, their spiritual eyes be opened. May they come to recognize their need of a Savior. And may they turn in faith to the Lord Jesus to receive what he has provided. So Lord, in these few moments, as we take these elements, help us to truly remember to truly celebrate, to truly worship. And I pray this. This is On Mission. The Mission Church is located at 12001 Ridgemont Drive in Urbandale. To learn more about our ministry, visit our website at themissiondsm.org or call us at 515-255-2122. We gather for worship each Sunday at 10 a.m. We would be honored for you to join us. Have a blessed day, and thank you for listening to On Mission.